I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Zay Frank. In web years, Zay Frank is a grizzled pioneer in online play spaces. Since 2001, when he released the early viral phenomena, How to Dance Properly, Zay has been creating content that encourages people to laugh, create, play, and collaborate. Zay is a frequent speaker at the annual TED conference and has two videos which outline his philosophy on media participation that can be found on TED.com. Zay has recently started a super secret social gaming company. You can ask him more about it at the reception. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Zay Frank. Thank you so much for uh, coming out tonight. Just quick show of hands, how many of you are actually gamers? Oh, it's actually a little lighter than, uh, and, and What's so. What's wrong with the rest of you? That's, it's, you're not speaking yet. I know, I'm not mic'd yet. No, this is my time. This is the only time that I get. <laughs> Let me tell you about my life. Raise your hand if you have uh, uh, um, an interest in games, and that's okay. So, wow, so there's some of you who just don't even know why you're here. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it looks like at this point. Uh, and, and how many of you would, would say that you have an inherent suspicion of games? There's two of you. Okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be tailoring this the interview towards the rest of the room. Uh, but we can have it out uh, afterwards um, it, near one of the Fords. If that's, it's a real pleasure for me to, uh, to get to do this interview with Jane. Uh, Jane is a, a very good friend of mine, and it, I'm also a huge fan of, of her uh, personally. Uh, there are uh, very few people who are as intellectually capable, but are also uh, makers. Uh, so people that are incredibly intensely interested in the world and actually fiddle with it. Uh, and it's been uh, an amazing pleasure for me to actually get to participate in a number of the games uh, that Jane has created uh, over the years, and one of them uh, in particular uh, called The Lost Ring, which is a game that she developed for the Olympics, which was played in physical space, where uh, people came together and they held each other's hands in the form of a labyrinth, and you had to try to navigate your way through it blindfolded, only guided by the humming that the, the human labyrinth made. And I have to say, uh, for me, I had this wonderful experience. I was actually part of the world record uh, holding team just for a week until yeah, New Zealand broke it. I was terrible at it because I'm a pretty big person, and the second I closed my eyes and had to start navigating, I became so incredibly self-conscious about my size. I was going to smash through people. Uh, and it was, it was an incredibly uh, intense, wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. So that was just a totally relevant story. But I was told I had to talk for about five minutes. Uh, and I think I have like one left, so we'll just sort of sit here. Jane wrote a book. Yeah, I'm dead serious. It's called Reality is Broken, Why Games Make Us Better and How They Can Change the World. So, Jane. You wrote a book. And just hearing you read the title now, I can't believe I wrote a book with that title. It's really, uh, that's a pretty bold assertion. It Reality is a pretty bold is broken. assertion. Yeah. So let's, let, why don't we start uh, at the beginning of this? Uh, because the, the, the way that you define games and, and sort of uh, start the whole book off uh, is probably, it, it already sets the tone for an unusual way of thinking about games. So why don't we start with what is a game? 
Sure, yeah. So, you know, I wanted to look at why games are so engaging today, but it turns out there's all this great archaeological evidence of people being addicted to games going thousands of years back. So one of the first things I discovered is that the first record of gamer addiction was 3,000 years ago. Herodotus wrote about people being so addicted to dice games that they would forget to eat. They would, you know only remember to eat it's every other day. It's what killed the dinosaurs. Oh no, too much gaming with the dinosaurs. I have a good visualization of that. Um, but you know, and even just this week, a new article came out in Science Journal showing that they found incredible ruins from 4,000 years ago of games and how central they were to civilization. So I wanted to have a definition of games that didn't rely on what we think of for video games, like 3D worlds or virtual interaction um, or you know even things like levels and points and winning. So I went for a definition that really encompasses all games. We've been playing games since we've been human, essentially. And uh, so the definition that I landed on is that games are unnecessary obstacles that we volunteer to tackle. And um, the, uh, there's a, actually, we met pretty much playing miniature golf. So this, is a, this will be a uniquely personal anecdote. Um, the best example of why games are unnecessary obstacles that we volunteer to tackle is golf is a really good example. Um, so uh, we, uh, when, when we play golf, we have a goal. And the goal is to get a little ball in a little hole. And in real life, if that was your goal, you would like pick up the ball and you would walk over to the hole. Which I've done. Right. Golf, uh, cheater, cheater, cheater. Right. Um, and then you would put it in the hole and you'd be like, I did it. And that's, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> but when, when, for some reason, when you play golf, because it's a game, you agree to stand really far away from the hole <laughs> and to use a stick to hit the ball. So it's doubly artificial. And then if that weren't bad enough, we put hazards in the way, we put traps. Um, but that really shows you what a game is. It's us tackling a challenge that is completely unnecessary, and we like that because it provokes curiosity in us about what we can accomplish. We have to be creative to overcome this goal we've never you know, tried to achieve before. Um, we like to be social around these unnecessary objects, sort of compare notes for how we do it. Um, and it puts us in this really positive state of stress that's self-motivated. Um, and and you know, I know it's sort of weird, because we think of games as being the opposite of work because we play them, but it turns out that games are essentially hard work that we just happen to volunteer for. So uh, can, you, can you just repeat the, the definition again and, uh, yeah. and we'll just sort of let it sink in for a second. Yeah. Games are unnecessary obstacles that we volunteer to tackle. Wow. Um, so I have to ask you about something, and it just dawned on me after I read that quote in the book, uh, how that kind of relates to something that I saw you doing in New Zealand, which is cookie rolling. Oh, yes. So can you explain just quickly quick, quick to the audience what, what that uh, is? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm a big fan of the myth of Sisyphus, which for those non-existentialists in the room, that's, that's the story of the guy who was condemned to roll a big rock up to the top of a mountain, and then it would always roll down again. And um, Camus, the philosopher, wrote... Uh, a, a, an essay saying that Sisyphus was the greatest 
human you could possibly be because he found meaning in this essentially meaningless task that he kept caring and he kept trying and it didn't matter that the rock rolled down, he would just stay in it. And I thought that was a beautiful story and it, it reminded me of gaming and, and the meaning we create when we play games, which are essentially meaningless, but we care and we will do anything to get the rock up to the top of the hill. And it does bring us it brings us motivation and meaning. Um, so I started a project where I was spelling out the entire essay by Camus in cookies. Um, in cookies. In cookies. I, I'm just going to interrupt here. So uh, I was in New Zealand uh, with Jane, and she said, uh, we have to go uh, to a store to buy some uh, Samoans. Local cookies. Local cookies. I believe they were a coconut-based cookie. Uh, and we bought quite a few of them, and we went out on a beautiful, beautiful day, uh, and you know, seeing the sights of uh, New Zealand. And we stopped, and she began to, on a slant, <laughs> roll a cookie about this this large up the slant. How many times do you do it? How many? Uh, just once. No, no, no. How many? But it's like fifty passes, right? You have to roll it all the way up. I, you fifty seemed, times. You seemed, no, no, but you seemed like you. There was a methodology to it. Uh, once up the hill, <laughs> but in every city. <laughs> right, and it's—I mean—it's pretty amazing to watch. Uh, 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 her husband and I were just sort of like talking and chatting, and meanwhile, in the middle of a lot of foot traffic, she's rolling a tiny little cookie up yeah. a hill, much like Sisyphus did, but yes. with a much larger cookie. Yeah, and then I spell a word out with the rest of the cookies and leave it there. And you can see this on my website. But it was, I did this for me because uh, I travel a lot, usually by myself, um, running games or talking to people, and I would get to the city and I would be alone in my hotel room and not want to go out because right. I'm an introvert. I'm like, I need a mission to get me out of my hotel room. I, I just made up this little unnecessary obstacle for myself that felt, you know, like, I'll go out, I'll find cookies, I'll eat them, it'll be great. <laughs> so, uh, but the reason that, that, that it's interesting to me, and the, the, the sort of connection I made all of a sudden was, oh, yeah, that's, this, is, this is a completely unnecessary obstacle. Obviously, you don't need to roll cookies up a hill. Uh, <laughs> but it's turned into something which, uh, and at the time, I believe you were very, very straightforward about the fact that there, there are activities like this that you do for yourself which give you meaning mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, help you out in, in darker times. Yeah. Uh, so this notion of obstacles in your way uh, is kind of counter to the idea that probably a lot of people have about games, right? A lot of people think of play, fun, and they think of the opposite of that being work. Yeah. Uh, but what you're describing, uh, as you describe golf, it seems like we are building environments that are harder work. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, I was trying to figure out, I try to understand this, um, I came across this great quote by a psychologist of play, Brian Sutton Smith, and he wrote, the opposite of pl uh, play isn't work, it's depression. And this really started to, to make sense to me. So if you think about the clinical definition of depression, um, it has two parts. It's uh, a pessimistic sense of our own capabilities and a despondent lack of energy. And if you reverse those two traits, you would get something like an optimistic sense of our own capabilities and an invigorating sense of energy. And um, psychology doesn't really have a term for that. You know, maybe 
happiness or flourishing, um, but it, I think it's a perfect definition of gameplay, right? When we tackle these unnecessary obstacles, we, we become optimistic, even if they're crazy hard, and we feel energized by our desire to uh, achieve this goal. Um, and it turns out that there is, a, there, is a, there is a psychological term for the state called eustress, or positive stress, which is when we stress ourselves out on purpose so that we can go into heightened performance, be more focused, be more motivated, be more resilient in the face of failure. Um, and it actually makes us more likable, that when other people see us working hard, optimistic, going for our goals, that they're more likely to help us, they want to be around us. So games are really, is what I've you know, sort of boiled it all down to. Games are a way to get into the state of positive stress which helps us t sort of tap into the best version of ourselves, make us more likable. And what I'm interested in is figuring out is can this positive stress we get in games trickle over into our real lives? So that just because I'm feeling this way when I play World of Warcraft or Call of Duty, can I also take that into my real life? Right. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a while now, haven't you? Because mm -hmm. like every single thing you say is like one large paragraph with like periods in it, and they're all perfect sentences. No, are they? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Which really makes my role more like, like I'm just a giant like button that you just press. No, you asked me about of. cookie rolling. That was I appreciate very it. improvisational. I appreciate you taking this moment out to make me feel slightly better. <laughs> but this is, uh, so what you were, sort of where we're going here is uh, the, the kind of gateway to your book, right? Uh, which is, the, the first uh, thing that you do is you relate play uh, and games to work. And then uh, you point out that people really want to work. This, this idea of eustress is, is something that, it, you know, the, the way you describe it, uh, is something that I think everybody wants a little bit of, being jazzed. I'm just going to throw that word out there. I don't know what came into my mind. Seems appropriate. Probably not psychologically like viable. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this, this, this idea. So it leads you to this, uh, this statement that we want to work and reality isn't good enough. And, and just explain why, wh what, are, what are the failings of reality? Yeah, so sense. most of the work we encounter in real life, um, it, it doesn't necessarily feel self-motivated or that we're free to choose the work that we want to do. Like most of us, we wake up on an ordinary day and we have obligations that are outside of our choice that day. We have to show up to work, we have to go to school, we are doing somebody else's business, right? Um, and, and so when we get a challenge, even if it's a challenge we might be good at, we might be interested in it, it feels maybe we're pressured, uh, so we get stressed out or we feel anxious, we don't know if we can achieve it the way it's supposed to be done, or maybe we just resent the fact that we're being asked to do it. Um, and, and so there's not really this right middle ground of us feeling both capable and also self-motivated. Um, we, we probably could find that self-motivation if we felt like we were making decisions every day. You know, do I want to go to work today? What work do I want to do today? Who do I want to you know, work with today? But we don't really have that freedom in everyday life. Games are giving us that freedom to, to actually make a choice about what we want to put our energy and efforts to, which is why I think it seems so, such a stark contrast. So that's where the, that's the second half of your definition, right? That's the voluntary part. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the distinction there would be that uh, whether, whether we think so or not, a lot of the things we do are, is not very voluntary and it doesn't, but there's another part of this, which you kind of pointed out, which is that 
You say that the work we do in reality isn't hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, also... How many people here <laughs> are not challenged in their jobs? And it's a serious question. So there's... Okay. So... Well, and not even people who might think that they're challenged, but could be challenged more. Um, you know... Let what, me pause you. How many people here would like harder work... <laughs> To do okay, so slightly more. If I kept on going down this line, I might might find it. But. How many people would like to, at the end of the day, you know, feel like they've really changed something in the world for the better and made a, a positive impact? Yeah, that's the hard. Oh come work. on, people. That's the hard really, work we're trying to get. Really, to. really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but so that's so you know, I, I work at the Institute for the Future also, which is this nonprofit research group in Palo Alto. Um, we try to help people make plans for 10 years or longer. We look at a lot of planetary scale problems like climate change and economic instability, um, getting people out of poverty. And uh, one of the sort of wake up moments I had a couple years ago at IFTF was a colleague of mine said, we, we need all hands on deck for this future that we're going into with the planetary scale problems that we're facing. We need every single person on the planet to put some skill or ability to dealing with these creatively, locally. Um, and that made me start thinking, you know, who, who on this planet isn't capable of using some strength or ability that they have to, to make a positive impact on one of these problems and, and how do we get them to do it? And uh, you know, my first thought was to look to the 500 million gamers on the planet who are used to tackling these obstacles and, and have all kinds of great systems for figuring out their strengths and leveling them up and going to the right quest. Um, and, and that's the hard work. When I say it's not, reality's not hard enough, I mean most of us aren't pressed to deal with planetary scale problems even though I think we have skills and abilities that would, it would make more of a difference than most of the work that we're doing. Right. So, to put, to, as we sort of transition into this, this sort of the, the I'd say the, the real crux of the book and the thesis of the book, um, I, I think that it's important for you to give everyone here that might not be as familiar with gaming as a worldwide phenomenon, the scale, like, you know, when you're, when you're saying this, like, you know, quote-unquote workforce, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's probably best to put it into some sort of perspective. Yeah, so 500 million gamers on the planet who are spending an hour a day online gaming, 183 million of them are in the United States, 40% of them are women, which is really interesting. Um, and the younger you get, the more likely you are to game. So um, under the age of 18, 97% of boys game regularly, an average of 13 hours a week, and 94% of girls game regularly, an average of nine hours a week. So it's essentially, as we're looking at the demographic shifts, potentially everybody you know, within 25 years will have a super majority of gamers. And you know, they're spending three billion hours a week playing games, which is a non-trivial figure. We can put the number into context. Three billion a week is a non-trivial figure. <laughs> I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. Well. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's sort of astonishing, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that to some of you it might seem absolutely scary. Is that fair? I mean, three billion hours uh, in games? Maybe not. I'm having a bad time uh, getting any sort of like uh, any friction here whatsoever. <laughs> They're ready. No, actually, well, how about we can scare them? We can scare them with my goal, which is 21 billion hours a week. 
that seat out, that that's, you could get more traction against that one, I think, which is yeah. a little scarier. I'm done trying. I'm done with you. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, so that's that is that is a it's a it's an impressive number, obviously, and and there's there's people that play. I think there was a, a sort of a cutoff point where you said that uh, 21 hours a week is sort of the magic number, right? Yeah, uh, like yeah. after that, things start getting a little weird. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's true. There have been a number of studies, some by the U.S. Army's mental health assessment team, some by independent researchers, academic researchers, um, and they all show that if you're under 21 hours a week, you're likely getting positive impacts from games, more confidence, more mental health, better social relationships if you're playing multiplayer games. Um, and if you're playing 28 hours a week or more, not only are you not getting positive impacts, but you're getting negative impacts. So that's kind of, I feel like I want to do a public service announcement because most people don't know these numbers. Maybe we could do what's see if we can think of something clever. I think that's what we're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, okay. Don't play 28 hours a week or more. If but you can think of a catchy slogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fine balance. Three hours a day, yay. Four hours a day, nay. That's, that could be it. There is the slogan. Right. You've seen it. Uh, Invented on the spot. Generated here tonight. Yeah. Uh, it's catchy. All right. Um, Let's all say it together. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> have to do that. So. Uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned these uh, sort of uh, positive reinforcements, right? So the things that uh, games give you, uh, you mentioned a couple of them, uh, the idea of self-worth, the idea of understanding your capabilities. Uh, why don't you just sort of like, you know, l list a few of them. Yeah. Um, the first is the sort of sense of urgent optimism, which is, I think of it as kind of a radar for opportunities to rise to the heroic occasion. Um, you know, when you're in game world, you're always scouring for that next quest or mission, and you're, you're looking for that person to help or that, 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 that juicy mission to tackle. Um, and that's something that if we brought that to our real lives, a sort of sense of urgent optimism, walk into a room, you know, what's, who's, who am I here to help? You know, what's my, what's my mission? Um, that kind of mindset is actually, uh, it, potentially very, uh, you know, beneficial to our real lives. Um, the resilience in the face of failure is another big mm -hmm. one. Um, research shows that gamers spend about 80% of the time failing in games, um, which is great research because a lot of people think of games as being a kind of cop-out, like we play them to feel good about ourselves and they're really easy and we win and we have this false sense of capability. Um, but if you think about real life, if you were to spend 80% of the time failing at something, um, that most people don't stick with things like that. They give up and, and find something better to do. Um, and so that ability to learn from our mistakes, to keep trying, to care about a goal beyond our initial sort of failed pass at it um, is this kind of, I sort of talk about it as problem solving stamina that you can keep at it. Um, and also also another potentially really useful tool for Relay. Right. So, so like rappers have it totally wrong. Like all I do is win just means <laughs> that they're just sad all the time. It, you know, because it's it, true. What's interesting, but I mean, it is interesting what you're saying because I, I'd say like some of the things that we that we think about as as being uh, ultimate goals in our lives, which are retirement, being incredibly rich, and basically having access to everything. Uh, it, it seems like it's exactly counter to what you're saying. Are the things that uh, kind of promote this eustress? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's one of the craziest studies that I write about in here shows that gamers are happiest right after they've failed. 
um, happier than when they have succeeded as long as they're getting feedback about what they did wrong. So games that sort of show you an instant replay or give you some stat that you understand what went wrong, that is, they've, they've measured people's facial expressions physiologically. That's the happiest moment in a game because you're still engaged in trying to overcome the obstacle, so you're still motivated. You learn something, so you feel confident and optimistic, and, uh, and you feel powerful, like, okay, I can get it right this time. That's, I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty counterintuitive, and I think, you know, radical. And, and so why does failure suck so hard in real life? Yeah, um, there are a few things about it. Um, one is that not getting uh, positive feedback about what we actually accomplished through failure. So a lot of times in game worlds when you fail, you still have some spectacular impact on the environment. Um, you know, you can, you can, like my favorite example is Super Monkey Ball. You, do you guys play Super Monkey Ball? Yeah, you know, if, if you send the monkey, it's a bowling game, you bowl a little monkey in a ball, it's really cute. If you bowl him off the edge of the, the, the into the gutter of space, you, you just see whee into space, and you're like, even, even though you failed, you're like, and a monkey into space. It was like awesome. Um, and the games are designed to make you feel powerful even when you fail. Or even in something like World of Warcraft where I'm on a quest and I didn't, I didn't, I haven't gotten everything I wanted to get. I didn't make all the kills or get all the loot. Um, I'm still getting experience points for trying. You know, right. I'm still, I'm feeling stronger and, and more capable. And if, and if I keep doing it, I'm either going to win or I'm going to level up and it's all going to work out. So, um, so we need better stats. Better stats and better um, opportunities to, to, to relish that we're, we're making an impact. Right. Yeah. So we don't have very much time. We, need, we have some, uh, reserving some time for a, a Q&A. Uh, and, and obviously the, 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 this book leads up to uh, you, you really uh, tackling this, this question of how can a lot of these principles, these, this, you know, a lot of the, the, the core principles of gaming, uh, change the world. Now, I, I encourage all of you to, to buy the book and read it uh, to, to get to that point. But I, the, there, is, there is a very touching, and I, I was sort of privy to this as it went down, uh, but it was very difficult. You, you had a, a concussion uh, that, uh, and I'll just sort of set it up a little bit here. Uh, Jane had a concussion uh, which uh, rendered her, unfortunately, uh, in a state where she really couldn't think and experienced uh, something very similar to vertigo uh, for about almost a year. Uh, uh, the first month was the really was the bad the, one. The bad part. But you yeah. had it was very very difficult thereafter. Yeah. And you sort of described that. So so uh, Jane was uh, actually working on this book, I believe, in the middle of this, and uh, decided that the only way she was going to last through this was to make a game out of it. Uh, and that is one of Jane's best strengths is that she practices what she preaches. I'm going to just read a quick little uh, couple paragraphs and then ask you about this uh, and what has followed out of it because I think it's a good example of, of what this uh, can lead to. Uh, but what she did, she handed out missions to uh, people close to her. Um, she said, as Jane the concussion slayer, I recruited my twin sister as my watcher, Buffy's mentor. She named everybody after Buffy characters. Her mission was to call me every single day and ask for a report on my concussion slaying activities. She should also give me advice and suggest challenges for me to try before uh, playing Super Better. That's the name of the game. I hadn't known how to explain to her that I really needed daily contact and not just to hear from her on weekends. I recruited my husband as my willow. 
his mission uh, was to do all of the score and record keeping for me, read me interesting articles, and in general help me with anything I wanted to do on the computer without getting a headache. Finally, I recruited uh, my friends Natalie and Rommel and their miniature dachshund Maurice as my Xander. Uh, their mission was to come over once a week and just generally cheer me up. So this, uh, it's, it, I mean, you know, I, you tell it in this very kind of like very lighthearted way, uh, but this was a, a serious thing for you, and yeah. it had a real impact. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know how many of you have had concussions that linger, um, but a month afterwards, I still couldn't read or write for more than a few minutes at a time, and my book was due in two months, and I was only halfway through it, and uh, there's a lot of anxiety around that. There's social isolation and depression. If you have a head injury, it causes symptoms of depression and anxiety unrelated to the actual depression and anxiety you also have for being in such a bad state. Um, and my doctor told me that I had to stop feeling that way for my brain to heal because um, the brain can't heal when you're in a constant state of depression and anxiety. It changes the brain chemistry. Um, and that it actually, if you don't get out of that cycle, it leads to suicidal ideation. There's a lot of, uh, it's a very high incidence of suicide attempts with people with head injuries. And I was on a very bad track towards that, and I could see that. Um, and so uh, particularly troubling was not only how I was feeling, but asking for social support. You know, like if you, if you have something wrong with you, it can be very awkward to people who know you in normal life and want you to be who you are and you're going through something, how do you get them to show up and be there for you and not feel awkward and not feel scared? What can they talk about? What can you do? Um, so at that point, I thought the only way to provoke positive emotion and fix my relationships was to try and turn it into a game. Um, and, and so, yeah, I picked Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I wanted to feel positive stress and not negative stress. And I thought, I will tackle this like I'm Buffy tackling demons. Um, and, uh, and, and most importantly, be able to give people in my life something concrete to do. Like Xander's the comic relief character on Buffy. So my friends, they just had to come over and make me laugh once. That was like their mission. It gave them something really concrete to do and, and not feel you know, awkward or helpless, right? Um, so it really helped me. I, I write about this in the book. Um, it, it didn't fix the head injury, but it fixed the depression and anxiety. And then my brain was able to start to heal. Um, so we actually have been doing tests of this game for other things like asthma, diabetes, chemotherapy. Right. So that, that's the, 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 based on that kind of work, that sort of like very personal work, uh, you are now working with the healthcare industry. Yeah. Uh, and, and thinking about gaming uh, in, in a lot of different contexts. You just mentioned asthma and... Uh, uh, diabetes, quitting smoking, rehab for sports injuries. Um, we're doing our first clinical trials starting this spring just for head injuries. Um, but we're developing, we're calling it over-the-counter version of the game and prescription version of the game where you would play it with your doctor um, and, uh, and that, that should hopefully be out this summer. So something good that the came out of... The play doctor must come up <laughs> oh, in, no. <laughs> in your meetings at Yes, some point. play doctor. That could be a sexy tagline for uh, the, the adult version of Super Better. That's right. <laughs> the adult version of Super Better, yeah. You should get in on that. That's, that's yeah, going to be I, very I, lucrative. Yeah, I can handle the marketing on that. Um, <laughs> 
the other project which I feel like is, is, a, is a really good, I mean, there's, there's lots of different things that you've tried uh, on many different levels. Some uh, more on the conceptual side, some with a very small amount of people that have done amazing things, some with larger audiences. Um, but the, the other one that I think is, uh, you know, brilliant in, this, in the sense of just being like, what, you don't think it's going to work? Here. Uh, that wasn't a farting sound. It was more like putting it out. Um, um, is Evoke. Yes. You want to tell us about Evoke? Yeah. Um, Evoke is a game I did for the World Bank Institute last year. Their goal was to teach young people, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, how to start social enterprises. So businesses that not only are supposed to make a profit, give you an income, but also tackle a social problem like clean energy access or clean water access. And um, they had a very hard time convincing young people of high school age, university age, to worry about these social problems. They were really just trying to survive, find any job. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, challenges for young people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so we created a game. Uh, we called it a 10-week crash course in changing the world. And we were kind of secret, a little secretive about what we were doing. Um, we created this graphic novel set 10 years in the future where the rest of the world was totally, uh, you know, I, I want to say all these curse words, but I can't remember if this is being recorded and broadcast anywhere. Do you need me anywhere. to help you? Or? Yeah, well, the rest of the world is all effed up. And Fakakta. Fakakta. <laughs> um, and uh, so Tokyo is having a famine. London is having cholera outbreaks due to flooding. Um, and it's these young people in Africa who've spent the past decade solving these intractable, seemingly intractable problems around hunger and poverty and clean water in Africa, that they're the superheroes for this next generation, where the rest of the world is depending on Africa to solve their problems rather than Africa saying, you know, help, send us aid. We need, we need your solutions. Um, and we were able to enroll students in this, and we sort of snuck up on them, 10 quests and 10 missions, um, quests about their skills and abilities, what they cared about, missions that would have them go out in their real communities and try starting an urban garden, try powering something, you know, power uh, a light bulb through, uh, you know, uh, kinetic energy instead of traditional electricity. Um, and get them trying these things, at the end of all the missions and quests, if they succeeded, they actually had an interactive business plan for their own social enterprise. Um, we were able to enroll in the 10-week pilot just under 20,000 young people from actually over 130 countries, which was a shock because we thought we were making a game for Africa, and it turned out there are young people all over the world who want to start their own businesses um, and, and save the world, which is good. Um, and out of the 10 weeks, 51 actual companies were founded. Um, we found the mentors, we got them seed funding through Global Giving, and they're actually now, we worked through them the rest of the year to develop them, and these are real companies now in India, Philippines, Nigeria, Uganda. Um, just to give an example, my favorite one, it's called uh, Libraries Across Africa, created by a kid here in the US, a gamer, who um, thought that libraries, instead of being nonprofits, should be more like McDonald's. Um, they should be franchises that if you want to be an entrepreneur in your village in Africa, you open a library, the books are free to borrow, but you sell snacks or cell phone access or Wi-Fi access, and they've created this franchise system to actually motivate people to, to start and manage these libraries instead of us having to you know, build them and manage them. They do it themselves. And they have the first pilot library up in Gabon right now. You know, a gamer 
from Boston making a library in Africa. Um, so this was definitely my attempt to say like, what, you don't think gamers can save the world? Psst, here we are doing it. So That's um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're, I think we're out of time for this part of the, the, uh, the interview, and we're going to open it up to uh, questions uh, from the audience. I'm wondering, based on what you just described about the young man in Boston and the, game in, the games in sub-Saharan Africa, we work on foreign policy, trying to educate Americans about foreign policy options, and we've been trying to find a way to use a, ga to use a game, create a game, to reach out to American youth in particular. Do you think that type of thing is feasible? Is it happening? And where would you direct someone? We were shocked with the Vogue, how many people outside of our target audience wanted to play. You know, 20,000, it's not 13 million people playing WoW, but uh, it's, a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of people who can potentially engage with issues. Um, my first recommendation would be um, that I, I've recently set up an online, we call it a secret headquarters for people who want to change the world with games. It's called Gameful, which is like playful, but gameful. Um, and it's a, it's a social network and collaboration space. Um, what, what you can do is you show up, say, here's something I'm interested in, and usually we'll be swarmed with gamers, game designers, other educators. And there's a whole bunch of people there. Um, about 2,000 very creative people now working on this stuff. So it's a good place to talk out ideas and find um, examples and uh, potential collaborators. Uh, hi, I'm Eugene. Um, Thanks, first of all, uh, to both of you for coming and speaking with us. Um, my question is, under the definition that uh, you've adopted in the book, is there a difference between playing a game and just setting a goal for yourself of any kind? Yeah, there's this great book. I mean, if you're interested in that definition, it comes from a book called The Grasshopper, um, which is a book all about trying to come up with the perfect definition of games. And they, they say, like, for example, if I were walking home from work, and I decided to take a long way. Is that an unnecessary obstacle? Am I playing a game? And they actually tease out, um, you know, well, why is it unnecessary? If you want to enjoy the view, if you want to work longer, they actually tease out um, just some important details, like the that the that the obstacle has to be counter to your actual goal. Um, so it creates this creative friction, you know. So um, you know, I want to take the long way home and make it back before the sun sets, and then it becomes a race against the sun. Um, it's, it is a sort of philosophical definition that you get to play with, um, and it's, it's something that I think is fun to play with and sort of push the boundaries. I mean, even on Gameful, we have a discussion where people are saying, like, is Super Mario Brothers unnecessary obstacles? How does it work? And playing with it to see if it's useful. Um, but there's definitely something about the absurdity involved, um, which is necessary to provoke curiosity. Um, we have to really wonder if it's possible. We have to have creativity come into play is how we would go about it. Um, and that's when people are asking me what kind of, you know, what kind of obstacle? Think absurd, think just absurd. And uh, that's, that's the best way to make something into a game. I was just wondering, kind of related to what you just said, do you consider uh, games to be an art form mm -hmm. that's similar to literature, photography, painting, things like that. And by games, I'm talking about all games from video games, board games, to live action role playing games, things like that. Do you consider that as basically an art form or is it something else? Sure, yeah. I actually taught a course at San Francisco Art Institute called Game Design as Art Practice. And what we focused on was games as the structuring of experience and that um, games are uh, 
almost like an architecture for engagement. And so that there are aesthetic aspects, um, all games, not, you know, so not just video games, that the, that the art is designing this bounded space with rules that drive people in certain directions and that, like architecture, it has to be balanced and it has to be provocative and that sort of thing. Um, the syllabus for that is actually on my website if you're interested. Um, just Google my name. You can see all, all the readings about why games are actually art practice. Um, but on, then on top of that, you have you know, game design across lots of media, which has visual arts, which has audio arts, which has storytelling. Um, and if we were going to get a little intellectual here, the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, the, the sum total of all arts. Um, do you like that word? I Did like I say it right? You, it. you would it say was, it better than no, me. No, I loved it. <laughs> um, that, you know, there is an opportunity to practice many different kinds of arts in the service of structuring experience, whether it's telling a great story or composing goosebump, you know, provoking music soundtrack. So that's also another way to look at it. So I play poker. I've noticed that people play differently when they're with play money versus mm. real money. And uh, what I'm asking you is, uh, what have you, what's your observation as to what the crux is for getting people to engage in the real world, like creating those libraries, as opposed to just playing a game which basically has no real penalties? Poker is a really good example um, because when you put real money involved, um, then there's, there's nothing unnecessary or arbitrary about it. I mean, you have a goal that is real to acquire the money, and it does seem to take it out of the, the space of play, although, although if you're playing to win, you know, most poker players are still, they're still really bound by that structured experience, and so um, it's, it's not completely different. It's just some of the strategies might be different. They're less willing to, you know, be, be free and, and, and have more, I don't know. Does the stress just become stress at that it point? It can, yeah, yeah. But, and so that's, it's tricky picking real world problems and putting them into games um, and trying to, find, trying to find things that make it seem fail, uh, safe to fail. One of my favorite examples is a game called Fold It that came out this year um, by a group of scientists at University of Washington. It was designed to help gamers help cure cancer, but instead of giving them a games like, go, go cure cancer, that's your game, um, which would be a very bad, stressful game, um, they created a 3D environment where you could practice folding proteins, which scientists know when proteins fold incorrectly in the body, it can trigger disease like cancer, and medicines need to work on that folding. So they gave gamers a 3D environment with rules for what makes good, stable proteins and asked them to help design new protein foldings that would lead to medicine. And they were told that they had to try and beat existing supercomputers on 10 challenges to come up with better folding. And at the end of six months, they had beat five out of 10 sort of supercomputer algorithms. So that made it, you know, here's a challenge I can understand. And if we fail, we haven't killed anybody. You know, we haven't, we're not intervening directly with cancer care. We're just trying to solve this problem in a space where it's still safe to fail. So I think that's where, that's, the, that's a really good example to look at for how we can bring real world problems in, but keep the freedom to play. Yeah. It's really hard though. It's, it's tricky. It's not going to be easy to do that um, for every problem. As I'm sure, of course, you know, uh, the issue of gamification is a really ubiquitous topic and uh, everyone's really quibbling over whether or not it's a positive or a negative 
force in our society. And when I hear you talk about reality is broken, I hear a lot of elements that are very popular within the discourse surrounding gamification. And I wanted, but rather than make a generalization before I read your book, uh, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on the issue. So for those of you who don't know, gamification is a term that's become popular with a lot of people who work with companies. I mean, it's not, people aren't gamifying non-commercial things. It's really a commercial enterprise. Um, to add things like levels and points and achievements to your shopping experience or going to a restaurant so that um, you know if, if you order the right Starbucks drink three times, you get an achievement badge, like things like that. Um, I don't use the word gamification in the book at all, <laughs> and um, I'm not really a fan of it. Um, uh, that's why I use the term gameful, which is having the the spirit of a game, the emotional qualities. And I think one of the most important emotional qualities is you have to give a damn about what you're trying to do in the game. Um, And uh, the gamification movement seems to be lacking an interest in um, helping people do what really matters. Um, To give you a sort of example of gamification versus gameful, New York Public Library wanted to do a game um, to get young people to come to libraries um, because young people really don't like physical libraries anymore. They like, you know, Wikipedia and stuff. Um, So they're like, what should we do? A a gamification approach would have said, you get a point for every time you come to the library, just check in, and you get an achievement badge if you take out a book. And that would have been, like, not awesome um, (laughs) at all. So we're doing a game for them uh, where you come to the library, you get to hunt down a 100 of the strangest, most curious objects they have in the library, um, everything from you know original copy of Declaration of Independence to the walking cane that Virginia Woolf had on her when she committed suicide. These are objects of really great power. Um, and they inspire you to write, and if you play the game, you've actually written a book, and then the book goes in the permanent collection of the library, and I think you would come to the library if you had a book in the library that you wrote. Um, so we're actually locking 500 gamers overnight in the library, 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. Nobody leaves till they write a book, and uh, that, is, that is more, that is, I think, going beyond gamification and saying, we know young people would love to write a book, lots of people would, we're gonna make a game to help them achieve a real goal they have, not the library's goal of getting them to show up, but a goal that matters to them. Hi, uh, my name is Zach Hanks. I do, uh, I work in dialogue production for video games. And the work I do is incredibly satisfying. Get to meet neat people. Very, my work is very much a form of play. We sit around and we make orc voices all day long. Um, however, um, it's starting to get boring because all I work on are diversions. You work on games and create games that have a real-world practical impact on making the world a better place. If I were to get involved in that sort of thing and you were to point me in the right direction, which direction would you point me in? Since you're already in the industry, um, the best place to go within the industry is a special interest group in the International Game Developers Association. Are you a member of IGDA? Uh, not yet. So IGDA is a great organization for professional game developers. They have a special interest group called Positive Impact Games, and that's for people already working in the industry who want to see entertainment games go in a direction um, that, that has a more significant non-diversionary you know, impact. Um, and that's a really good place to look because um, you know, I'm sure you understand as well as I do, 
you don't want to just leave the game industry and go you know, make games all by yourself. We want to kind of bring the game industry with us, with all of the incredible talent that they have and the resources and the, the knowledge and the innovation capacity. So that's what I would recommend, um, Positive Impact Group and IGDA, um, because that's within the game industry, the people who are most serious about it. Can you do an orc voice, though, right now? <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, I think I can, something like this. Knives and cockney and toothy. How's that? Awesome. Good thinking. Good thinking. When you were talking about the psychological and emotional benefits of gaming, uh, you made a point to mention multiplayer. Yeah. So is, what, can you discuss the fundamental difference and the benefits of rolling a cookie up the hill by yourself in yeah. Buenos Aires versus you know, playing a multiplayer game? The biggest potential downside of games um, that seems to be popping up in the scientific literature is, um, is that they pull us out of real life, they can pull us out of real life social relationships if we're playing them alone or if we're playing them online with, with people we don't know in real life. Um, and that it, it's not something fundamental about spending time by ourselves. I mean, we don't really worry about people spending time by themselves walking on the beach or books or whatever. Um, but it's that the amount of time we, that we would spend that could be spent with other people, building up family and, and friendship relationships. Um, so what we're seeing is that if you're playing multiplayer games, especially in your household, um, kids playing with parents, husbands and wives playing together, that it has very powerful benefits. Um, that it, for daughters, for example, who play games with their, with their parents, that the daughters are feel, report much closer relationships with them, they trust them more, talk to them more, they have less behavior problems, they um, have just higher confidence and happiness. This is a great study that just came out last week from um, Brigham Young University's School of Family Life. Um, so there is something powerful about feeling this positive stress and working together. Um, multiplayer games in the same space or cooperative games, and that can be online with you know, people we know in real life but who aren't in the same room um, or in the same room. Those are the two most powerful kinds of games. So I have this practical advice for gamers online. One of them is try to spend at least half your time playing games with, with other people in the same space and that um, to always be looking for co-op modes, cooperative modes, because it's much better than playing competitive. Um, in terms of, if you want real life positive impact, competitive games can make us work harder and motivate us, um, but it's better for our relationships to play co-op. So. I have a question regarding education and social change and gaming. Um, if 97% of under 18 year olds are, are very much into the gaming business, can you, how, I don't know if it's in your book, but could you talk a little bit about incorporating positive gaming and at what age, let's say eighth grade, when they start to really get into competitive gaming yeah. to introduce places where they could affect positive social change and kind of get them started in that direction so that it grows. Both my parents are public school teachers, so I think about this a lot. Um, my mom, who's teaching third grade right now, she, uh, she's implemented a, a game system in her classroom um, where the kids have created avatars online and each kid gets to pick three strengths that they have. So this is kind of thinking about a role-playing game, World of Warcraft type game. Any three things that they're good at that they want other people in the class to know that they're good at and that anyone else can come to them for help or questions. It doesn't have to be school stuff, but anything you might want to get advice on or help. And every time they help somebody else with one of these three traits, they get plus one for that strength. And um, the kids really like it. It helps them 
focus on you know things that they're proud of and want to get better at, and uh, and they also become mentors in teaching and and, and get to help each other. Um, this is a very simple way of taking a piece of gaming culture and bringing it into the classroom, which is generally what I recommend. We don't have to create multi-million dollar games around everything, um, but just looking at little bits and pieces. What's the name of Katie's school? Yeah, so the, the example in the book is called Quest to Learn. Um, it's a charter school in New York City. Uh, Quest to Learn is, you Google it, they have their curriculum online, they have sample classroom materials, and the whole school is, um, the curriculum and schedule is designed with game designers working with educational specialists. Um, and they so successful, they just opened up a second school in the city. Um, so there's lots of great information online about what they're doing. It's like not semesters, it's like missions, right? Yeah, they, yeah. They go and they actually have to like complete their missions. And yeah, and like if you fail a test, if you or whatever grade you get on a test, if you don't like it, you take it again, which is the way we play games. And you think about, when you're talking about failure, and why is failure so punishing in schools? There's no reason. I mean, if you fail a test in math class, who does it hurt? What is the actual cost to anybody? But we just randomly decide if you're not good enough on that day that I chose because I'm the teacher, you failed forever. Um, so th that's one of the biggest innovations in that school, which a new study came out a few weeks ago showing we learn better when we take tests than when we do by studying. And the best way to learn something is just to take tests over and over again. So it's interesting to see that they started doing this before that science came out because they were inspired by games, but now it's getting backed up by other, um, other methodological research. I heard you on the TED Talk about the 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. You made a point of that, of um, Malcolm Gladwell's book in Outliers. And my question is, uh, there seemed to be a, 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 a teetering number here. You said that those uh, that, uh, people should uh, could, would, whatever, play 21 hours a week, mm -hmm. they're fine. If you're playing 28 hours a week plus, you're not so fine. Yeah. You have other troubles and so on and so forth. Wouldn't the person playing, I'm just saying this for the heck of it, but wouldn't the person playing 28 hours a week get to the 10,000 hours first? So the 10,000 hours figure um, is just the average number of hours that somebody spends playing games by the age of 21 in this country, um, especially the later you were born after 1980, the more likely this is to be true. I'm interested in this number because not only is that how long you spend in a classroom for all of middle school and high school, um, it's also considered uh, to be a threshold for becoming very good at something. Um, 10,000 hours spent working at the edge of your ability by the age of 21 um, has been shown to make you a virtuoso. Um, so the question of could you get to those 10,000 hours faster and maybe become a virtuoso faster, um, it, that's, that's an interesting uh, challenge to it. Um, but I think what you would find is that once the negative impacts of not having relationships, you know, not pursuing other goals um, might offset becoming a virtuoso. You, but you also, so the, this, this is the Mihai checks and Mihai uh, uh, flow statement, right? The 10,000 hours. Um, he had sort of said stuff about this. But, no, sorry, oh, but I didn't in your know. book, yeah. you, you had said that the, the fact that uh, this environment, the gaming environment, is so fast at providing the right kinds of feedback and optimizing towards your level that yeah. potentially you short circuit the 10,000 hours as well, right? If it's optimized. Is that true? Um, well, so it's, 
you have to be working at the edge of your ability the whole time. This would entail you finding games that are increasingly complex and challenging. So if you were to spend 10,000 hours playing Farmville, I mean, but it wouldn't work. I mean, you, you, that game's not challenging in an escalating way enough. So I, we, we're not necessarily getting every person who plays games. Do you games. have a cow? Do I have a cow? I have a whole stable full. I mean, I played Farmville an hour a day while I was writing this book to help me not go crazy at how unproductive I felt. Um, that, that felt more productive than writing. <laughs> it did. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I think uh, that you know, if you want to become really a virtuoso gamer skills, Practically speaking, you want to be seeking out as complex a game as you can, particularly with increasing forms of collaboration and cooperation um, or longer-term strategy, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and don't overdo it because if you do, by the time you get to be the virtuoso, uh, your life will make it harder for you to you know, be happy about that. Hi, uh, my name is Stephen Pease, and I did a little bit of programming for a game when I was in high school, so I found your talk um, a very interesting subject because when I graduated, I decided I uh, wanted to do a real, you know, have a uh, real-world effect. Um, since high school, the, uh, the level of technology that I've seen in video games has increased pretty radically. Um, I was wondering if you think that there's a point where games are going to become so real that they are no longer a game, that they no longer have that same psychological effect. Where I see that fuzziness happening is with um, the input devices and also the spaces we play games. I mean, so yes, there are games that we're going to have 3D gaming and it's going to be very immersive, but that will clearly still be a game. The ones that are fuzzy are the physical input game, so now we have the Xbox Kinect controller where you or your body is a controller. And so like, what's the difference between dancing in Dance Central and dancing to dance, right? It starts to become more fluid. Um, and then games that are being played in real world spaces, it's what they call the game layer for platforms like Scavenger or Ground Crew where you can get you know, points and, and challenges in real life, um, where GPS is involved, where accelerometers are measuring what you're really doing, um, social stuff, measuring who you're really seeing. Um, and that is where that fuzziness really comes in, because if I'm just going about my ordinary day in my city, you know, in my office, moving around, and it's being measured, and it's being rewarded, and maybe I'm doing things because of a request, but you don't know I'm doing it, it looks like I'm just here, but I actually have a secret quest going on in my head that you guys don't know about. Um, yeah, that would be, that would start to, to then blur the lines. And there are, you know, so I, I mentioned Scavenger and Ground Crew are two platforms I would look at if you're interested in this blurring of lines. Um, because then people all around you could be playing games and you don't know what they are, which for, could be awesome and intriguing, or it could be weird and unsettling. And so... For a dystopian look at this, there's an, uh, an online video, I don't know how you feel about it, but Jesse Schell talks about a dystopian capitalist future where everything is tracked that you do. When you brush your teeth, you get points, and everything, everything basically just feeds into a system. And as absurd as, as it sounds as I'm telling it, 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 uh, it, was, it was a fairly compelling mm -hmm. uh, a story that he tells. Yeah, and the game-pocalypse, he game calls pocalypse. it. The game-pocalypse, yeah. Jesse and I, we're, he's 
so at IFTF, we talk about worst case scenario futures and best case scenario futures. And Jesse's talk on the game apocalypse is a very persuasive worst case scenario. And I'm trying to find better case scenario futures. So given that that's the, the last question, uh, is there one, you know, if, if, if everyone here, like, in their own lives could, could apply one of these things, uh, the, one of these principles that you have, what's your, what's your uh, little nugget of advice in, in saying goodbye? Yeah, okay, so, you know, I think um, we should bring gameful ways of thinking and acting to real life. So one of my favorite things to do is to have a secret mission when you show up at events like this or, or go anywhere um, where you have to find the person that you're meant to help and, and do it without them knowing is, is one of my favorite things to do, uh, sort of stealth helping other people. Uh, I've stolen from some of my favorite games. Um, it's just a way of saying you can make unnecessary obstacles for yourself and they can be meaningful and they can make boring situations interesting and possibly dramatic. Um, and, and that's just a gameful way of, of thinking. Because the worst thing we could do is just play games and act like who we are in games is totally different from who we are in real life. We don't have to be different people, except for the, the one, those of you playing the games with the shooting and the you know, <laughs> different people. But the ones of you who are saving the world and being heroic and awesome, same person. Bring that to reality. Well, thank you very much, all of you. Thank you, Jane. Yay. You were awesome.